to episode 11 of Texting, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. How's it going? We've been a little bit on a hiatus here. It's like been like almost like, uh, I don't know, two weeks? Yeah, we're two weeks down now. Very, very embarrassing. Yeah, it's time to time to get going. I've, I've, uh, you know, I've, normally what I do is I keep track of, I have kind of, kind of a list of all the topics that I think might be worth talking about. And yep. <laughs> my list got like 50 long, so I'm like looking through it, trying to figure out what the... What's worth talking about? And I was like, uh, I, I pruned it down to about 10. <laughs> you got 10 things. Okay, we'll, well go on. We'll... <clears throat> we wouldn't have to talk about them all, but I got a bunch that are probably interesting. <clears throat> okay, go on then. Uh, what's what's your first one? Let's let's take it take it in turns. We'll do alternative topics. All right. Well, um, I don't know if one of the ones that's interesting, it was uh, the, the blog post that this guy, a guy named Joshua Porter uh, um, over at bocardo.com is now called Steve Jobs on why Apple doesn't do market research. And what was interesting, he was essentially um, talking about an article, I think, I think where Steve Jobs interviewed in Fortune. And, uh, you know, basically Jobs says that they don't, they don't hire consultants, they don't do market research. They essentially just try and figure out what it is they want and they build it. And they try and they said that they're fairly disciplined about once they figure out what it is that they think would be cool or they would want, they just try and figure out, well, is this the kind of thing that other people would want too? So it's the, it's the, it's the, um, scratch your own itch. Yeah. I mean, exactly what Apple does. I mean, they're not, they're not about like focus groups and, and all that. They're just like, you know, what, what do I think is worth making and thinking, what can I get excited and passionate about? I mean, they sort of, that's interesting. I mean, I can't imagine Microsoft um, having that same approach, but maybe okay. I'm totally wrong. Well, I'm sure there are people in Microsoft that have that approach about their particular project and stuff, but I mean, I don't know whole know, know a whole lot about them. But if the bigger companies is probably harder and harder to pull that off. But if the guy at the top is setting that example and he's like, yeah. "We don't, we're just gonna do what we think is cool," and luckily the guy at the top, what he thinks is cool, other people tend to think is cool. <laughs> I was actually looking. I was looking through a little bit of a history of Steve Jobs. He's a, he's kind of a cool guy. I mean, he's always been cool. He's always looked like a like a funky geek rather than a totally geeky geek, you know. He's always had a bit of funk about him. I don't think he was ever that technical. I mean, I think he was. I, I don't. I mean, Wozniak was the real tech guy, I think, and 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 right. when Apple first started, and I don't know if he was very technical at all, or if he was just sort of more of the business guy, the the visionary guy, who who, in combination with Wozniak's sort of engineering brilliance, they were able to do something cool. I mean, maybe he does have some technical ability. I don't know. But the other thing about it, one of the things I said was interesting was that Apple's primary goal is not to make money, but to make great products. Okay. So they figure by if we make great products, the money will follow, which is really interesting because just sort of as a as a life, um, you know, a way of living life. I mean, there's so there's a saying like follow your heart, and you know, you'll you'll be on the right track. Like, don't chase the money. Don't go after what you think is gonna make the most money. Do what you love to do. Yeah. And if you're really good at it you know, there's a good chance you, the money will follow as well, at yeah. least enough money. I mean, you might not get rich, but at least enough money to, uh, to live on. And, and, uh, but if you chase the money, then you don't have the love and all you have is the money to try to make you happy. And you might still not might make the money. And then in the end, it might not be worth it anyway. <laughs> well, if you enjoy what you do, it just doesn't feel like work. So, you know, that's you know, just a better way to live. You know, it was a great saying is like, love what you do and do what you love and you'll never work another day in your life. I think something goes like that. You know, um, I don't know. So anyway, it's just like Apple, you know, at least from the way that they approach creating and, and, and building products is is all about passion and scratching your own itch and doing what you love and creating what you want. And yep. 
what you would want, and that's why they're always at the leading edge. And, you know, I remember reading an article years ago about Bill Gross. Remember the guy who started Idealab? Yes, and he's isn't he the guy who, who essentially is responsible for Google's business model? Yeah, what they what they built like um, it was GoTo.com Overture, I think. Um, which before that was Go or GoTo. Yeah, yeah. But and they bought by it to Disney. Overture. And did Google buy Overture? No, but they got but but they realized that that's what their business model was. Yeah, because it wasn't their idea. I no, it wasn't was, their idea. It no. was Bill Gross's idea. Listen, Google didn't think of search, and they didn't think of their business model. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's so funny. Like people rewrite history, and they make everything s such a simpler story. And it's like, oh, you know, uh, Serge and Larry, you know, they're brilliant. They thought about the search model. It's like, because every time I read that again, I'm like, you know, I think I got that from Overture, and I and I bring that up to people, and they're like, what's Overture? And I'm like, don't you remember back? You know, I don't know. But anyway, Bill Gross had this thing called Idea Lab, which was which was an incubator, and he would essentially come up with ideas for companies, and then he would hire uh, about I think it was like seven people was his magic number, and he would just basically sit them in a room with some fold up tables, and they would and they would just crank for like two or three months and release it. It was like this rapid release. They did like Cooking dot com and. I mean, they did a ton of them. If you if you go and look at the history of it, I mean, they did a ton of companies, um, City Search and all this stuff. And this was back during the you know 90, 98, 99. And the reason I bring this up is that there was a I think it was a Harvard Business Review article about him, and he was and they were talking about well, how do you come up with the ideas or where these ideas come from? And he basically said, look, I just try and come up with stuff that I would want that I think is cool. And, you know, if it doesn't exist out there, then and I think there might be a market for it, then I create it. And he said he got that idea from Steven Spielberg because he had, I guess he had met Steven Spielberg and, and Spielberg had taken him a tour of one of the Universal lots or whatever the studios that, he, you know, Spielberg was, was a part of. And he asked, and he asked Spielberg, well, how did he come up with these great ideas like Jurassic Park and Close Encounters and all that stuff? And he's like, I just make movies about things that I think are, are cool. <laughs> you know, so I think that's it. I mean, if you think something's really cool and you're sort of lucky enough not to be an outlier in that everything you think is cool, everyone else thinks is stupid, <laughs> then you're probably on a good right track. And even if, even if what you think is cool, even if it is sort of idiosyncratic, you know, the world is so big now within, and, 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 and are so small in the sense that it brings everyone together on the internet to, to, to niches um, that if you, have, if you like something that is kind of bizarre, there's, there's bound to be tens of thousands of people who like that bizarre thing too, and it might just be enough. But that's that's I don't know. very cool. Um, tell me something, just changing the subject slightly, um, have you heard of uh, iOS? Oh, E-Y-E-O-S? Yeah. Yeah, I remember that, yeah... A couple of years ago, and they're like one of the desktop OSs, like um, NetVibes or something. Uh, basically, it is an operating system in the web browser. You know, it, it's the it's the concept of where we thought that Google was going. With um, like the Google. Um... Well, it's not Google. It's it's uh, some other crowd. Um, I, I don't have the full details, but basically, they're using JavaScript and they're making what has the look and the complete look and feel of of an entire OS. Um, and you just need the web browser. And and if you actually go to ios.info, you can see you can see the the operating system there. And and it just sort of feels like as if you know you you're arriving on the Windows login screen. You log in, then you get in, then you've got a desktop, and you get the real experience when you open the browser to you know when you open the browser to full screen. Then it feels like an OS. You know it it has a whole bunch of applications. It has you know word processors. It has um, stuff like Prezo. 
uh, for PowerPoint mm. and all that. The only thing I'd say is it's, it's, a, it's a great ambition, but the reality of it is it's very unresponsive. It, it doesn't feel you know, like a real OS. I mean, obviously the whole thing's written in JavaScript. And it, I mean, I don't know. Well, actually, you'd probably say that that doesn't make a difference. They could optimize it to make it feel great. I but, think so in most cases. I mean, you know, it's, I mean, you could, you've seen, you've, there's examples of JavaScript that is extremely responsive and efficient, and there's examples of it where it's just kind of slow and sluggish. And I don't know. I mean, it, I guess it really depends on how well it's written and also how much they're trying to get done. Well, I mean, the, the, and so their idea is is for any you know anyone can create apps for the for the iOS. Mm -hmm. So you know they've they've got uh, like a, an API, and you can download the source, and you can run it on your own server. You can run it on your local machine. So they you know they really want this to be something that that sort of explodes. I think. Well, why does anyone if it's slow and sluggish? I mean, why does anyone care? Well, that's the thing. I mean, I, I don't. I mean, I think it's just it's just new. It's just out the starting gate. So, God, I, you know, I remember something like I thought they came out a, like a couple of years ago, like a really? y, I think y Combinator or something like it was Y Combinator. I mean, there's like there's a whole slew of these things that were like Net Vibes, you know, iOS. But Net, but Net, I thought Net Vibes was just the equivalent of like the the Google uh, I Google or something. Yeah, I Google. Yeah. You know, I don't know. I mean, I guess. You know, maybe maybe iOS is more of a of a sophisticated thing, but at the end of the day, I mean, it's not really an operating system. It's it's has a bunch of little widget applications for productivity stuff, right? I yeah. Mean, that's that's so yeah. in a sense, that's kind of what is accomplished by NetVibes, right? It just aggregates a lot of content and widgets and things. No, 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 no. I mean, it feels a lot more like a desktop. I mean, it's it's it like it's it. I mean, NetVibes is just, uh, I, I don't know, to me it's just like widgets and RSS feeds and just little things like that, whereas this is actual applications. Mm, yeah, there, you know, I, 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 I was a guy who I would, I would kind of become friends with down in Australia named Stephen Kelly, and he had a product called People, and uh, it's like P-E-E-P-E-L or something like that. Okay. I can't remember it, and they, they were building a desktop office suite, but they were also building like a desktop kind of like an iOS kind of a thing. I can't remember what, I don't know what the status is of that yeah. product. I mean, I think they were doing okay, but I remember him bringing this up. That's, you know, it's a tough. Do you think know. anyone can do it who isn't Google or, or Microsoft? <laughs> well, they can build it, whether in, whether yeah. they can get enough people to care about it. I don't know, you know. I, I, don't, I don't really know if, um, I, don't, I don't see what pain point they're really, they're really solving. I mean, what's Okay, well, just just anyway, just just for the listeners, if you want to get straight into this and have a look at the desktop experience, just go to eyeos.info, and that gets you directly into uh, a deployment of this desktop application. Right. Okay, so I got another topic. Okay, shoot. I have three related topics, which are kind of funny. One one was it was called how to increase signups by two hundred percent. Oh wow. Okay, that's good. And yeah, and uh, it was written by Ryan Carson over at Think Vitamin, and uh, he was essentially referencing a. Um, I think he had a conversation with Jason um, uh, Fried or Freed from um, Thirty Seven Signals. Is it Freed or Fried? I can't remember. No idea. 
<laughs> okay, well, anyway, he's a 37 signals guy. And he asked him, I think he said he asked him, like, well, what's what have you really learned? Because he did a bunch of A-B testing. I guess 37 signals is now getting into A-B testing, which is something they hadn't really done. Yeah. And I even heard in a recent interview that what they're going to do with all this, they're going to do a very extensive A-B, test, A-B testing. And then from all the things that they learned from that, they're going to write it up in, like, an ebook and sell it for, like, you know, 20 bucks or something. Hmm. Because and that was a part of a whole another talk he had, which I listened to. I can't remember it was like on future web apps or something like that. And he's he was saying, you know, that when when you're in the process of building a pro- something, you're usually building something on the side as well. There are other things that are being built along with the process that you might think are waste, but are not. Like Ruby on Rails came out of the development of Basecamp. They're huh. getting real workshops, or their whole process, or the idea, they, the their mantras and their sort of lessons they'd learned. They wrote a couple books about getting real and defensive web programming or something like that. Uh, defensive design, I think, might have, might have been the book. And they monetize these sort of side, um, what do I want to call them? Not side products. They're... Um, you know, when you create something in a manufacturing process and there's offshoots, like a, offspins. Yeah, it's not the word. I'm, it's like a research and development stuff, just just R and D uh, projects, sub projects. I can't think of the word. It doesn't matter anyway. But <laughs> there are these other things that you can monetize if you're paying attention. And so anyway, they're they're creating, they're doing this A/B testing, and so they're going to write an ebook because they need it. They want to optimize their signups and their and and their not only signups and conversion rates, but there are, you know, people using the product. That's funny because they they have the potential of of going into the murky world of internet marketing and and hanging out with guys like Joelcom. Uh, have you ever heard e- of Joel Joelcom? No. Uh, J O E L Joel C O M M dot com. Go and have a look at his website. He is uh, he's made many millions through selling info info products online. So because they because they do A/B testing to get people to buy. Crap off their website. Well, they they it's just the internet marketing uh, plethora. <laughs> is A/B testing? No, no. It's like what what Joelcom's. I mean, that this is like a, a, a the A/B testing is like a sub a subsection of internet marketing. You know, like the well, the internet marketing I mean, guys, the like, internet marketing gurus. I mean, it's it's. I don't know if I. I don't know. Maybe. I mean, I think of A/B testing is just if is just trying to find out what's the most. Effective well, if they're doing it to sell an ebook, I'm I'm saying A/B testing in conjunction with selling an ebook is no. basically internet. No, 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 that's not it. No, no. Oh. So they're doing A/B testing to say, okay, when people when people land on 37 Signals or Basecamp page, okay, what percentage of those people actually sign up for a trial or actually convert into a paying account? You know, what things? If we change the color of a button from yellow to green, or they move it to yeah. left to right, or they change the copy, or they. Yeah. Create some new tabs or whatever. And A/B testing is that you do one and one. You you send some of your some people land on the page, go and 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 look at one site and some look at another one, kind of randomly. And then you measure the results. Say, well, hey, you know, people who looked at when the site had a green button versus a yellow button, we had seventy percent conversion, you know, increase in conversion rates or whatever. Yeah, so what wanna... they're learning, what they're going to learn from all these tests, they're going to compile and 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 write into a, an ebook book. Have so you ever A-B seen? Test- um... Sorry, I'm sorry. I'll, you, I'll just just say with this one thing. Have you ever seen these the sales letters that you get from these internet marketing guys? You go to the page and it's like, dear friend, you know, yeah, yeah, buy yeah. this, oh, buy yeah, this. So, they this. so the, those are the guys who optimize. And the the kind of thing that they find through the A/B testing is is that if you have a checkbox at the bottom of the page next to the buy button, you will get 25% more sales simply by having the affirmative action of a checkbox. Yeah, and I also I remember reading something a while back that. that you know those articles, like you go on these pages like that, and they'll have these really long series uh, amount of text, It'll be pages of scrolling. Yeah, text. yeah. I just yeah, with all the all the 
user stories and you know yeah. I, I got this and i you know i made two million dollars in four days and it just goes on forever it's like yeah. four pages of scroll or five <laughs> yeah. or six pages of scrolling text and uh, that's what actually converts. <laughs> that, that, that's what I think of when I think about these A-B tests. I think of those kind of pages, you know, like especially when you're talking about sales conversions. I think about those kind of pages and these, you know, they, it's a very scammy feel. It's all Internet marketers and it's all kind of lowbrow. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, okay, I guess it all depends on what your purpose is. I mean, if it's like if you have a web application and what percentage of people come and are interested in your site and then, then just go leave immediately. I mean, they don't even try it out. Obviously, you're probably, if they were interested enough to come to your page and they don't even sign up or look at a demo or do anything, then you're clearly not communicating very well what the, what the benefits of or what you're doing. So I don't think that has anything, there's anything um, sort of um, scammy about that. Now, if you're trying to sell crap, you know, you're trying to trick people. I mean, half the time, it's just common sense. I mean, if you don't have a big box on your homepage explaining what your product is, you know, you... You could do an A-B test, you know, one test, I don't have a big box explaining what my product is, one where I do have one. Well, obviously having this big box explaining what your product is is going to make life a lot easier for anyone coming to your page. Well, no, so here's the thing, right? So you say things like that, but a lot of things that, that people think are probably wrong and they just don't know until you run tests. And it's just like, you know, the people who uh, – generally the people who are involved in, in, in building – you know, web applications and writing code think of themselves as very quantitative and sort of analytical and you're not in it's like, well, you know, if you say, should we move a box here or should we have less copy or more copy? You can come up with these weird arguments it's like, all right, let's test it. Test it. I'll let's tell see. you where that that, 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 that kind of testing works really well is with PPC campaigns. So such as advertising on Google um, and you just change a couple of words and you run the tests and you run one ad, you run a second ad and you third ad, maybe you run 50 ads and you just try all of these different word tweaks and, uh, you get, you know, a better click through rate just by phrasing in, in a certain way. Yeah. I read an article about that. Um, or, and, and I, it was a topic I was bringing up, but we never got to it, but he, the guy was essentially talking about using like the Google optimizer or something or, you know, in conjunction with Google AdWords to be able to figure out when is the best way to run a campaign and stuff. And it was really helped improve, um, his, con his the, the, the efficiency of his, of his, of his, of his, uh, Google AdWords campaign. Wait, wait, let me, let me say one thing. So we got <laughs> yeah, sure. off track. <laughs> Sorry. So the whole point of what he was saying is Ryan Carson asked Jason Freed, what have you learned? What was something you've learned? And they said, if they have a button that says on the front page or whatever that says, see plans and pricing, as opposed to a button that says, sign up, it's free, their conversion rate increased by 200%. Now, it would be, it would, it would be just like the kind of thing that someone said, you know, could make a very logical argument like, oh, dude, just say sign up for free. You know, everyone will sign up because it's free. You know what the hell? Well, actually, you know, I guess they don't you, – you, it's hard to determine exactly why something works, but they're, they're speculating that, you know, when people see free and they get afraid that they're just going to get tracked or tricked into something and have to pay for it later. Whereas you can go and take a look at plans and pricing. You can get a sense, okay, really, what is this going to cost? That's like I was, uh, I was actually reading a blog about uh, Twitter and um, getting people to, to follow you on Twitter. And this guy did all these different A-B tests about um, – when he wrote a blog post. That was but, the next topic I was going to bring up, actually. Oh, really? So it, was called, it was called You Should Follow you, Me on yeah. Twitter by Dustin Curtis. Exactly. You should follow me on Twitter. You should follow me on Twitter now. Yeah, well, actually, no, actually, here we go. He says, yeah, it was like, you should follow me on Twitter was the, not now, which is uh, here. You should follow me on Twitter here. Okay. 
was the was the most effective and all the other variations and things didn't help but he said I guess what he's saying is you identifies the reader directly should implies an obligation and follow me on Twitter is a direct command yeah. moving the link to a literal call out here provides a clear location for clicking anyway that's kind of funny I mean I guess as humans we're just sort of hardwired to behave certain ways to language and stuff and you know well you may you may notice on textinglive.com I, I put this big uh, link on the top of the page that says subscribe now via iTunes <laughs> <laughs> and follow me on Twitter here. <laughs> so hopefully that, you know, will make a few more people click that link. And well, then now it's subscribe. not going to have an effect. Say subscribe to iTunes here. Subscribe to us. How about this? How about we here. just say, look, if you're listening to this show, please can you do us a favor and subscribe via iTunes to TechZing? And also do us a favor. Do yourself a favor. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's a good point. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, no. It's, it's if beneficial you like to the show, you. <laughs> if you. If you like the show and it's worth listening, sign up. If you if you don't, then don't. <laughs> we don't want to torture anybody, right? You can get there straight by going tinyurl.com forward slash texting. That takes you directly into it. Right, right, right. Because that just goes to like what Steve – one of the other things that Steve, they had, that Steve Jobs said in this article, he said um, – he says – but when they're creating products or something, says so it's not about pop culture and it's not about fooling people and it's not about convincing people that they want something they don't. We figure out what we want, right? It's just about. And that's my whole focus on the show, and I think we've talked a lot about that. At least you and I have talked about it, and yeah. not just the show is that we're trying to create a show that you and I would want to listen to. Yeah, that's it. That's all. We got. That's all. That's all we got to try and do. As soon as it becomes something that I wouldn't find topics, I wouldn't find interesting or whatever, it's like you know, it's not even worth doing. Although, to be honest, the more I hear your voice, the less I want to listen to this show. <laughs> <laughs> well, then there. That's A/B testing. We'll, we'll do a show with just you, and maybe that'll okay. <laughs> we'll do so much better that I'll just be kicked off the show. All right. So you got a topic? I got some other topics. Unless you got. I them. saw that. Okay. It's something else that that came through um, Hacker News was the. Bobby McFerrin in the World Science Festival, and I just thought it was very cool. Did you see that? No, I don't know what that is. Uh, so you know, you know Bobby McFerrin. He's the guy who makes music uh, just by with his vocals. Right. Yeah, <laughs> I think he's the guy who does. Don't worry, don't worry just be, be happy. happy. Yeah, yeah. So he's he's uh, he's on stage uh, in the festival, and he says, right, we're going to do a pentatonic scale now. So he stands here, and he says, right, this is la, you know, and then and then he he moves slight two places to the left, and he says la, right. So mm -hmm. then he goes back back to the first one, then he goes back to the second one. So he's only he's only explained it twice, and then he moves to a new position which he hasn't explained, and then the whole audience instantly sort of gets it, and then he mm -hmm. starts making this whole song and he's like you know jumping around the stage to all these places that he's never told the audience what to sing. He's right. only showed them two notes, you yeah. know, and he, he basically makes this entire song. It's absolutely brilliant. Um, just just type in um, into Google uh, Bobby McFerrin World Science Festival, and you'll see it. Well, that went nowhere. <laughs> oh, dude. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. That's like John C. Dvorak always says that on Cranky Geeks. <laughs> I would love when he says that. Like, oh, that went you don't think that's nowhere. impressive? <laughs> no, it's fine. I just mean, I'm just being a smart you're the, I guess you're, you're not a very musical person, are you? You probably don't give a monkeys about music. I like, to li I like, like most people, I love listening to music. I love music. I don't know how to make music don't, doesn't it impress you that the crowd would just like be able to know what the notes were even though he hadn't shown them yeah that is interesting i mean that may that that probably is those, those neuro 
hard hard wiring of our brains, you know, they just Okay, fine. Let's not talk about this anymore. I don't know. Yeah, it's okay. Like <clears throat> just Hadoop. Have you have you looked at Hadoop much? Did we talk about that distributed database? Uh, well, Hadoop talk? Hadoop is just a distributed everything. It's I think it's it's a, it's like an um from from Apache. It's it's the sort of basic dis distributed framework, and then on top that they, they put uh you know uh, databases. So it's it's sort of like um the way that Google has the the distributed file system, and then on top of that they put the database. Okay. So Hadoop is the basis of it, but uh, it's really if you go to Hadoop.Apache.org. There's a lot of interesting stuff there um, for anyone interested in scaling issues. That's all you got on that one? <sighs> That's it. Fine. Come on, you give me a topic. <laughs> just, I don't know anything about Hadoop. I don't know. Um, okay. Uh, well, la, la, you know, la, la, you're la, supposed la. to be in tech. You're supposed to understand these I mean, things. You're, just, you're supposed to know really, something. You're, not really, yeah, you're just saying, hey, it's neat. I mean, we're not, we got to get some content or we got to ask some questions or I don't know. I, I don't know. There's so much to work with on there. Okay. okay. Um, I'll, then I'll try one. You can shoot mine down. Um, <laughs> I don't really have as much the, of the uh, the tech heavy stuff. I more, it's, a lot of it seems to be more like like web startup businessy stuff, but anyway, whatever. I mean, the one thing I found was kind of cool was. Um, how to debug PHP using Firefox with a Fire PHP? Huh, okay. That? Yeah, I heard of it. I haven't checked it out. Yeah, so Firebug. If, I mean, for anybody who does any, you know, web development, I would imagine it's about everybody. They probably everyone uses Firebug because it's like almost impossible to debug. At least if you're doing JavaScript, because otherwise it's almost impossible. It's really inconvenient to debug because so you have to do like, you know, create some kind of a of a console out equivalent. You know, for watching, you know, for printing out variable values and stuff. But, you know, Firebug came along. I mean, before that, there was something called Venkman. Do you remember Venkman? No. Venkman was written. It was like a Java app that you could use as sort of like a debugger for. Um, I, I think Venkman worked just with a uh, early version of Firefox or maybe Netscape. What is this for PHP debugging? No, or for, JavaScript. for JavaScript. Okay, yeah. yeah. And uh, <coughs> so Firebug. Is is really really good. It just keeps getting better, and it's mm. you know you have you can stack traces and you know watch in local windows and info. I mean stat you can just look at everything. It's just really good. But um, what it, what Fire PHP allows you to do is you with you basically have to install some kind of PHP code on your server, and you actually have to install the Zend framework, which is a gigantic pain in the ass. Mm. <laughs> you have to install like this twenty meg framework just so I can use this add-in, but. Um, which I think is really stupid, but um, anyway, the it's very cool because you when you're in your PHP code, you can you can do some settings so that some variable values and stuff like that automatically get spit out, and you can and you can look at them through Firebug. I hate the Zen framework. Yeah, I just installed it because I needed it for some other stuff that I was doing. So PHP. bloated. It's humongous. It's unbelievable. It's, well, it's and like, have, have you looked at the architecture of it? I mean, I don't know whether this this is the same architecture as something like .NET. Um, maybe I mean, you could tell me. I don't know. I mean, it's 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 big, like a like a like. It's, I mean, it's not as big as .NET. I mean, .NET and like the Java framework, those are just humongous. But I mean, Zen framework is pretty much. I think uncompressed, the the standard install was like twenty two megs. I mean, like it's just the way that everything's broken down to such a, a minute scale. Like that, there is very rarely more than you know two lines or three lines of code in any single thing. And I know that's the way that you're supposed to do things, but it's just 
when it gets to that level of abstraction, I mean, you know, there's like most things that you do, they're, they're doing like five or six or seven extending on top of other things. I mean, levels eight boomers like the the inheritance. Inheritance, like, yeah, exactly. Like six, like seven levels of inheritance just to do anything, right? It's just yeah, just and that's how frameworks work, I guess. I mean, you know, if you look at um, or at least most of them, I think if you look at like .NET and Java, they're like that too. Hmm. Okay. You know, I mean, you'll you'll just keep going back uh, higher up the looking at base classes, and it just, I mean, I mean, that essentially just keeps you from having to reproduce code, I but guess. it does make it a little more. You know, because the code gets reused against all these different classes, so you just inherit it and you know share the code. But... I think I, I I guess what I mean what I hear is the more that you use something like Zend, the you know the faster you can become. You know, you can get really fast at knocking out sites and different stuff, because so because of the the abstraction basically. Yeah, I think it's a lot like Rails and stuff. You have views and models and controllers, and then you got all these utility classes for doing tons of you know different things and. Um... Yeah, I think it's probably true with most frameworks. I mean, it's frameworks at first can be really sort of intimidating. At first, you look at them, they're just so big and so much stuff to read through. But if you get over it, you're right, it probably does. So is that what you've got, is that what you've got about this uh, Fire PHP thing? Well, I, I mean, I, I, I didn't at the time. I didn't install Fire PHP because I had to install zen framework and i just was in the mood to do yeah that. had to install zen for another reason lately uh you know just a few days ago so maybe i will try fire php with it but i thought that was very uh, okay cool. so you haven't tried it i have not tried it i read an article i was getting ready to install it and then it said install zen and i started dealing with install zen and i was just like screw this i don't feel like dealing with this i just didn't have you know the time to spend you know dealing with it i mean which is a little frustrating because it's like you know they, they have this fire php um, it's just a little. I guess some PHP code that had to be that would need to be on your server to to send the data through and the HTTP response so that Firebug can get it on your client. But instead of writing some some you know hundred lines of code and just making that you you have to install the whole damn <laughs> Zen framework. I thought that was just kind of unnecessary. Um, that's just a perfect example of like that's like when people write these client applications and it's like oh we have this cool like you know chat thing or this neat thing but you could install like .NET or Java too I'm like oh my god like forget it you know I mean you know it's like Google one thing Google does is smart like their Google Talk and stuff they're like you know 500k downloads or something for the whole application there's no it's all written in it's all you know binaries for the platform there's no you know requirements to yeah but they can afford to do that. Like Wait. it's, well, it's it obviously takes a lot more effort to develop the way that Google are developing and to to do these native apps than it is to just develop on top of .NET or. or yeah, Java. it is. Well, yeah, I mean that's that's the thing, right? It's easier to to rely on these frameworks, but then then you make your users download and install them, which I think yeah. really limits your um your scope of your user base. I mean, I mean, I had a a, a guy I knew who, who was. They were they were doing something like that, and he's like, "Oh yeah, this is really cool," and you know, and do the install, and and it, it may if it's going to force me to install the latest version of .NET, and it was like, I was like, you know, I'm not going to do it. Forget it. <laughs> it's just too much of a pain in the ass. And uh, I, you know, because for Windows, you could use something like um, you know, uh, what's it, Qt? You yeah. know that the cross-platform C++ uh, C++ library. You can also use Python interface with yeah. it. I think Nokia Bothell or something. And uh, there's like WX widgets. There's a whole bunch of cross-platform C++ libraries um, that you can write stuff with. The only problem with that, though, because I've looked in that a number of times for a number of different projects, and the only problem with using these cross-platform things is that the native apps never really look 
native. They all look, they often look like, you know, yeah. Windows or something. And so if you're, a, if you're, if you're on a Mac and you have this Windows looking app, you're just like, this is crap. I don't want this garbage on my screen, you know? So next. <laughs> next. <laughs> next. Um, hey, okay, now that you have such a bad attitude, I got a topic for you. Hate-driven development. Oh, okay. You see that one? No, I didn't. No, tell me about it. Okay, I just thought it was kind of this guy. What was his name? I'll look it up. But it's just kind of a, a meme. The guy, the guy, he started it and he posted up on, I don't know, Hacker News or something. Everyone's congratulations. You've started a meme. <laughs> but uh, I think it makes sense, which is it's just, like, it's just another way of phrasing the whole scratch your own itch, which is like, I'm, gonna, I'm going to solve this problem because I hate, I hate it. Or I hate this existing solutions. Oh, okay. You no, know, just I absolutely can't stand it. Pisses me off. Actively pisses me off that I'm okay. going to uh, I'm going to create a project to solve it. So you'd almost, in some ways, look at some reason reasoning for a lot of people doing Linux. They just hated Microsoft. Hmm. It was a primary driver. It was it was it was not. It, I mean, I'm sure people developed Linux for a lot of different reasons, but I'm sure there were some people who were doing it purely for. Hate, hatred towards Microsoft, or primarily because of hatred towards Microsoft. Well, that's probably going to be coming Google's way sometime soon. Yeah, the bigger you get, eventually you piss people off. Speaking of pissing people off, you think about like the whole Apple, AT&T shitstorm that's been all uh, over the... I did, actually, you know what, I didn't I didn't look into it. What, what's, the, what's the deal with that? Well, I guess, okay, so what's the deal? Um, they kicked off... The, it was like Google Voice or something that you could run. It was an app that you could run on your oh, iPhone. Oh, I see. And they're not going to allow – an AT&T won't let it into the App Store. It was already in. And in fact, I guess oh. one of the Apple people, one of the higher-up execs or something, I can't remember the guy's name, he sort of ushered the process through because people were we, – because you know, initially it was a submitted and people were questioning about it. And, the, and then one of the topics, they could say, oh, no, no, I'm ushering it through the process, the approval process. It's like, it's yeah. on but then, like, I don't know how long it was up there, and it wasn't up for very long. I, don't, I, I got the impression it was only up there for a couple weeks or a month or so. And, uh, and uh, AT&T well, – the, the speculation was that AT&T was the one pulling the strings. AT&T claims that they, that, that they don't have any control over Apple's App Store, that it's App, Apple's choice. But I think it only makes sense that AT&T would be the one to want to kick it off because I guess it would allow people to do – um, long distance calls and all this kind of stuff. Or, or so this is the TechCrunch headline: um, uh, Apple's getting rotten to the core, and it's AT&T's fault. Yeah, that was one of my. I saw I, th- I saw articles in a few different places, but definitely TechCrunch covered it. Huh. Well, what do you so think that's about the kind that? Of stuff I that's mean, going to piss it, people off. A hate driven towards well, AT&T in this case. I don't know why people are surprised about that because essentially Apple's always been a walled garden. I mean. You know, there's they, and they always change their minds about things. You know, and there's plenty of examples of things like this in the past. Like they've never been an open outfit, you know, that yeah. lets everyone do what they want. They've always been that that way. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't. I mean, you know, I mean, it's like they're a business. I mean, it's like in one hand they may create, be passionate about products that they create and create great products, but then, but ultimately, yeah, it's like they're going to control their little world and they're going to do things the way they want and they're going to make as much money off it as they can. And there's, you know, I guess there's nothing really, it's not like it's illegal or even immoral. It's just, that's their choice. And they may, you know, alienate a certain number of customers because of it, but maybe they do a calculation and says, okay, if we keep control over this whole thing, you know, whether it's the operating, the Mac operating system or it's the iPhone or whatever, are they, 
app store is they keep control over it. They can keep the quality high. They can at least they can keep control of the revenue more than if they got let it let it loose. But you know, I'm sure there's a certain number of power users and the technorati and stuff, and they say, you know what, certain people are going to be pissed off. It doesn't matter because if we if we didn't do this, uh, the revenue maybe they figure the revenue would be significantly harmed. You know, because there's a lot of people who say, you know, I mean, because people are going to complain about everything. There's always going to be people who are going to complain about stuff. You know, it's too expensive. It's not free. It's not this. It's not that. Well, you know, you're you're never going to make everybody happy. And all you can try and do is is make, um, you know, smart calculation to optimize, to create something that enough that a large percentage of people are going to like and want. And you know, I I think you know, there's another. Um, article that was kind of relates to this was um there's two articles one was by um zed shaw do you know who he is i think the name rings a bell he's like he wrote um mongrel i think which that ruby um um web server i think it's called mongrel okay just, a lot of just the Googling now. yeah and he's like a he's i get the impression he he's kind of like um you know a, a coding sort of you know, real coding badass, right? Like he's written all this, you know, high powered stuff in Python and Ruby and C plus plus that a lot of people use. And, okay. and I guess he wrote one article. It was something like how he, he, he hates the, the, the way the GPL works or something. The, um, the license was at the, uh, the GPL. What's that? Yeah. yeah. It's just the it's just the, the the sort of the legal framework in which you you distribute your open source software. Yeah, I can't remember the exact title, but essentially what he had said is that he had released he had written Mongrel and in effect really got almost no credit for it, and not not or very little credit, and that there are a ton of people making money off of using Mongrel right. and claiming they built all their stuff from scratch without the fact without really spending. What's, what's Mongrel? I think Mongrel's a, a like a, it's like a web server that uh, Rails, Ruby on Rails, uh, integrates with sort of easily. Okay. It's it's, it's a very a very close relationship to that. Um, I'm, I'm sure you can run Ruby on Rails on a variety of servers. Zed Shaw, who created Mongrel, a library and web server that just about everyone uses to serve Rails applications. Exactly. Is basically a god. <laughs> right. So he's, but he got really. I think he he became really embittered because, you know. He, all these people are making a lot of money, all these different startups and stuff, and building all these Rails, you know, web services, and he's not making any money. He's not getting any credit, not much credit. And people, and he even said people, certain people were were even talking shit about him and saying, well, you know, Zed Shaw's not a very good coder and all this stuff. And meanwhile, he built the platform off which a lot of people are running their stuff, and he doesn't even get any bit. So he doesn't even get any business off of it because nobody even really gives him any credit. Not only, much less licensing fees or anything. And so. He he decided. I guess he wrote some new, or he's using some new uh, or some different licensing for something he's writing now, which is like some. He's building like a new email server or something called okay. li, liber, like Liberated or something like that. Maybe look that up. I don't I don't know what it's called. That's but interesting. Yeah. It's a big. It's pi, It's gonna be written in Python and and it's supposed to be you know I get the impression it's this pretty powerful cool tool and he's just like look. He's like, I'm making money off this one. I don't care. People well, you get know, pissed off that it's not under the GPL or something like that. It's like certain people, you know, certain types of projects that, that aren't money-making and, uh, you know, enterprises can use it for free. Other you ones know who's done incredibly well through through the, their licensing model by not using GPL? 
is MySQL. So basically, what MySQL have done is they've they it's 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 open source in the sense that you know you can get your hands on the source and you can make enhancements. But if you make if you make enhancements. Basically, if you want that, if you want those enhancements to to get back into the product, you have to feed them back to the MySQL guys, and they work them into the product under their quality control. And so that that gives them the sort of power, and that's the reason why they can sell to enterprise and the enterprise model. Because the, the the problem, a lot of companies want to pay for stuff, and and the main reason why they want to pay for stuff is so that there's accountability, right? Mm-hmm. Because if you just get stuff for free, there's no accountability. But right. what's great about MySQL is you, you you can get this enterprise version and you get the accountability, you get the support and all that stuff, and and hence the reason that that uh, you know MySQL has been able to actually turn open source into real money and then basically exit for a billion dollars. Right. Right. So. Well, um, yeah, you know it's, uh, but I think it's kind of interesting. I mean, the whole thing about like the whole debate about open source and free open source software and the ability to make money and and not and it's like i there's another article that i just read i'm just trying to look look it up a guy the inventor of the language call it's called key i think does that sound oh, familiar to you doesn't sound familiar well it's, it's basically it's it's some sort of functional language let me see if i can find this guy um just read it last night Yeah, okay. This guy's name is Mark Tarver, Dr. Mark Tarver. And um, he wrote, uh, I think it was called QI. How do you pronounce that? How would you pronounce that? Key? Kai? QI. QI? Mark Tarver, creator of QI. Yeah, yeah. And he starts talking about the problems of open source. He had this article about free open source and how... He really, I mean, he seems to know a lot about it. I mean, he's been around a while. I think guys probably, I think he's estimating he's around 50 or something based on what he was talking about. And well, the, t- the title I've got on Reddit is Mark Tarver, creator of QI, a great although not widely known programming language, gives up and says goodbye. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Forget <laughs> it. Well, I think he gets kind of frustrated with the whole, uh, the, the, what he calls the FOSS, or free open source software movement. Yeah. yeah. He basically calls it a delusion and says that, you know, everybody, he says that most open source software just sucks, despite what people want to say. There's a handful of things, but even the handful of things that people think is open source, like Emacs or Star Office or things like that, were actually originated and written by very high pay, highly paid people at either universities or yeah. like at, at, at industry or their universities essentially were paid for, for by grants by us through grants from the government, right? I've no, I, I just don't understand why uh, people want free software. I mean, like I understand on some levels, I think, I mean, obviously, for example, third world countries or, or whatever, you know, or people who are very poor, I think it's fantastic under those scenarios. But just people like me, let's just say all the other people out there who are like me, who who have money coming in, like me and you, you know, we, we make a living. Like, what the hell's wrong with paying for your software? I just don't know. Yeah, I think it's stupid. I mean, I think that, I think that. It it basically screws everybody in the software industry because like, I don't mind paying twenty, fifty, hundred dollars, two hundred dollars, depending on you know for more expensive software, but something yeah. I'm going to use. I don't mind it's it's worth it to me because, um, you know, it it it's just a way of 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 uh, keeping the people who are 
creating the software around and wanting to update it and stuff like that. And it's not that much money. And then, of course, if you want to create something, then you can get paid for it. And, you know, like an author or somebody who, you know, writes a book, they can write it and get paid for it over and over again. But now, this, you know, everybody wants everything to be free. And it's like, hey, if you give to that, sure, everybody wants everything to be free, but nothing is free because you're, essentially you're paying for it with your own time. But but people do feel, I mean, and this, this is an, another thing about the inter, uh, another strategy of internet marketing, um, to going back to internet marketing. People do feel a great sense of reciprocity. Like when you get something from someone for free and if it's really valuable, you actually sort of want to find a way of paying them something to giving, yeah, giving them some money. Yeah, but it's such a fraction. It's such a small fraction. Oh, you, you think really, so, yeah? I think it's a joke. I mean, it's, I think I, I agree with this guy. I think it's a joke. I mean, well, I, think it's I, like, I wouldn't know about because, for example, Jeff Walker's product launch formula. Um, it's I'd, I'd encourage anyone to look look up Jeff Walker's product launch formula. And one of the things that he talks about is setting up um, a webinar to introduce your product. So what you do is you set up this webinar to introduce your product. You sort you you know you get like a couple of thousand people to come and listen to this webinar, and you set it up so that you've got some really respected people from the industry listening to the webinar, and you give them this this great knowledge and information for free. And sort of by the way, you know I, I've got. I've got my product. So in other words, you're giving them this great information, this great free information. And out of reciprocity, people, you know, a lot of people will buy the product then. I don't know. You don't agree? I don't agree. I, I think that you're you're ultimately looking at a lot less revenue. And it's like the whole thing like, oh, we'll, we'll make it on support. Like I'm going to build this product and then I have to do tech support to make money. Or, just, or as this guy jokes, like sell T-shirt shirts or get donations, you know, or is he just begging you know, I mean, it's just, it's just. Well, on, well, what about, what do you think about No Agenda? I mean, they say, at, like at the end of every podcast, they basically, <laughs> for want of another word, beg for people yeah. to, for people to give the money for the show because they don't take any sponsorship. And that's I think that's perfectly fine. But I have to admit, after listening to like 50 episodes, it gets slightly wearing, you know, after, yeah. you know because they, they're always saying, they have this big section about, you know, give us money, give us money. Yeah, well, I mean that's you know, and advertising's annoying too. You listen this week in tech, and they're talking about Audible to the year to the end. You're like, okay, you're ready. But I mean, I'd ra- I'd rather just pay the money to to not hear them ask for money. It's like a nag, basically. I'd I'd gladly give them the twenty four bucks a year just to have a version that didn't have them asking for money. Yeah, yeah. But you know, on, but back to software though. I mean, just software specifically because that's more that's a little different. I mean, podcasts and things like that I think are a little different category. But I mean that. People for that kind of content, you know, like watching TV or listening to the radio, radio people are less inclined to want to pay for that. But software is something for up until recently, you know, people will pay for, you know, they don't expect it for free. And then it's and then people whose business model is to make things free, I think is stupid because all it does is screw all of us. You know, it brings it brings the expectation down that all software is free, like as if your time is free because nothing else is free. Well, who, and I think who, Jason Fried gave a there was a talk about that. How he thought that was in the most asinine things in the world. And so, well, so sorry, who who does make stuff for free though? That's that was. Well, I mean, even, all these all, all this open source stuff and like every you know, it's like there's all this push to make an open source version of everything. It's like, why do you really want to do that? I mean, because all it does is all it does is you're not going to get much out of it, but you're totally screwing over anybody who in that industry wants to. Like he was talking about, like these Lisp, um, uh, you know, uh, development environments and how I guess there's one called like SBC or C or something and that's like free and it sucks in comparison I guess to like Franz Lisp or something at least at least according Dude, to Dude, open source doesn't necessarily mean free. 
I mean, that's that's that is a bit of a misconception. Well, that's what he's calling. He's talking about free open source <coughs> versus just open source, right? Okay. So he's, he's talking about FOSS. He's being specific about FOSS, right? Free open source software, and you know that in essence, most of it sucks. Most of it's buggy. So in the, in the, you're going to end up having to spend a lot of your own time, you know, sorting it out because it's not well documented, it's not well maintained, and then it just brings the price down of competitors, so you can't compete in that space. It's the same problem when Google goes into great bunch of stuff and creates their their web service and just gives away for free. And so it just like creates like a nuclear winter in that whole space. There's no more innovation. Right? I don't know. It's it's interesting. I mean, it's difficult for me to to come down on either side of the argument when I think about it because. PHP is basically completely free, yeah, and you know my entire it. career is is based on. Okay, be, so you pay two hundred bucks. You pay two hundred bucks for installing your server. Big deal. No, but listen, I mean, I would pay P. I would gladly pay for PHP now that I've been using it for ten years. I'm completely hooked. But I, I mean, I got into it because it was free. Yeah, <laughs> well, I mean, that's I mean that's why it is. But I mean that's obviously why it exists because I think really it works as a loss leader if you have something else that you can sell. But um, well, I so don't PHP know. PHP have Zen Optimizer, they have Zen Studio. I mean, yeah, they're they're, they're a little kind of Microsoft in their own right. All the stuff that they have supporting Zen. But I don't yeah. I don't know what the I'd like to know what the market cap of Zen is. I don't know. Probably. I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's it's not that it, it's like open source strategy where you you have something that you're giving away for free and something you're charging for obviously works. Right. I mean, it's just like freemium model and web services, uh, you know, web apps and stuff. You know, you give something away free and then people want the high, more premium product with Zen Optimizer or whatever and people pay for it. Um, but, um, you know, I, I think the whole, you know, free web apps and the whole free you know, open source software and stuff in some ways can can hurt competition, hurt quality, you know, because it's free. There's no real guarantee to the uh, to customer and stuff. You know, and, but, and look, but, I'm saying this to someone who, who, you know, Prezo is still free, right? But that's why it's dead. That's why but it's you dead. know something, like it's, it goes back to the argument of even though software is available for free, people will still gladly pay for software because I will always, like nine times out of ten, I will choose a version that costs money over a version that's free. The only exception is free mind mind mapping software. For some reason, I mean, I'll always try out the free version of the of the, of the class of software to see what it's like, and free mm -hmm. free mind mind mapping software is just so bloody good, right? Mm -hmm. It's just mm -hmm. so good that I I use that. Um, you know, I've tried out MindJet, and it's just it, it's yeah, it's kind of fancy and maybe just does a bit too much. I just want something simpler. It's like it's like a a, a later version of like Microsoft Office or something. It just has like a million features. Well, it's no. I mean, it's, it's MindJet's fantastic as well, but free, there's just something about FreeMind because it's a little, it's it's more pared down. It's a bit more snappy. I, this this whole snappy responsiveness thing is very important to me as a software user, as you've probably noticed listening right. to our podcasts. Right. Well, anyway, let me let me just say one sort of closing remark on the whole open source thing. It's like it's not that I'm against open source by itself. What I'm I'm coming down on the side of say like what Jason Fried was saying, which is that when you when you don't charge for things. You really are limit the probability that you're that it's going to be an ongoing concern, that it's going to survive, that's going to be worth anything, and uh, that a lot of open source stuff dies because of that, because there is no revenue in it, because ultimately it isn't free. It's just you're paying for it with your time, because otherwise you could be consulting those hours and making a ton of money, that which then you could go and do anything else you want. I heard, you know, uh, I've forgotten the the where I saw this article, but I was read a very interesting article, and what they were talking about was that the reason why you make your product free is rather than lose competitors 
to your competition, you lose, sorry, rather than lose clients to your competition, you lose clients to yourself. And then you find other way of monetizing those clients. Yeah. But the problem is when they, when people say they don't really, they're not really <coughs> selling other software, they're selling services or asking for donations. I think that's just crap. That I see. Work. I see. Okay. So, so you're talking about donations versus the whole Richard Stallman that all software should be free, I think is total crap. You know, that, okay. you know, that you're not allowed to charge for software. There's something unethical about software that all should be free. I just think is a total crap. So Basically, why isn't, saying, so why, I mean, why don't you eat your own dog food then? Why is Brizo completely free? Well, I mean, what the plan wasn't to leave it free. The plan <coughs> was to, um, to start charging for it, but we just ran out of funding and, um, and it was still free at that point. Um, and, uh, Okay. I was like, well, you know, I believe my wife is like numerous times. She's like, why don't you just create like a premium version and start charging for it? But I'm like, you know, if I do that, then all of a sudden there's this sort of implicit service level agreement. And it's because it's basically at this stage because you you don't want to support it anymore, right? You don't have enough time. It. I don't think there's enough money. I mean, you know, how many hours am I going to spend a month answering, you know, tech support questions <coughs> on a product that I that isn't going to be bringing in any substantial amount of money? So it's like I. I could be spending, let's say I spent 10 hours a month, right? Not a lot, 10 hours a month, um, you know, doing support. And, you know, right now, I mean, I charge about hundred dollars is, you know, consulting rates, right? So that's a thousand dollars a month. I'm going to lose dealing with, dealing with that crap. Right. Um, cause I don't have any free time uh, outside of that. And, or if any time I sit behind the computer doing it, it's going to be code. It's going to be making money. So, but I don't, you know, let's say I charged, you know, five, you know, $5, let's say for simple math, I did $10 a month for a premium account. That means I'd have to have a thousand users, right? A thousand paying users. How long is it going to take to build up a thousand paying users? So maybe it takes, let's say it takes a year and it's probably gonna take a lot longer than a year, right? Then that's $12,000 in lost money. You know, I just don't know. I just don't think the numbers really add up. I'm just, I'm just sort of pessimistic that. I won't in, in net net end up losing money because I just don't think there's going to be enough people who are going to pay compared, you know, because Google gave, created out with a, their version and just gave it for free. I've just realized this podcast is amazing value for our listeners. It's worth 200 bucks an hour. Right. <laughs> uh, probably not. <laughs> probably not. Um, okay. Have you got anything else? Uh, la, 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 la. Um, let's see. Let's see here. I don't, oh, you I don't, know, speaking of consulting rates. Okay. Shoot, I thought yeah. that was interesting. Um, I think there was a there was a topic on Hacker a, a discussion that popped up on Hacker News a couple weeks ago. And yeah. A guy was talking about how he was charging fifty dollars an hour, and he really wasn't getting the um, he really wasn't getting the business right. He's like, mm-hmm. "Am I charging too much?" Yeah. And it was interesting because I was expecting pe- people to say he was charging too much, but everyone was like, "You're charging too little, right?" Yeah. Like if you're competing on on with uh, people in in countries like India and China who are charging you know ten or fifteen dollars an hour or something, it's like, yeah, you're not going to get any work because people going to Elance looking for stuff for the most part are just looking for real low end stuff and don't want to pay anything and haven't figured out that you're going to get what you pay for. And he's like, "But you know," and a lot of the responses were people who do consulting and people up in the Bay Area doing work up there were, you know, paying 100, 125, 150 bucks an hour. And they were saying, you need to raise it at least to 75, if not 100. Because first of all, when people say 50, people think you're lower end, right? Because if you're going to go low end, I mean, you're going low end, right? You're like, oh, I'm going to go to Elance, get my site built for 250 bucks, right? You don't even want to be in that game because you can't survive on that, right? You might as well just go work at McDonald's. So 
in which case you need to make sure that you're good enough that you could be high end that you can do things that are very hard to do that not a lot of people can do or at least not do well and um you know what you know whether it's you know really advanced ajax or really advanced iphone development or c++ i don't know whatever something that's hard right something you can't just write up in a spec and send it off to some third world country about and have it come back and be pretty good um so you know you need to be at the higher end and and, and if you if you're not the higher end then if someone says, "Oh, I'm going to pay," I, I get a budget for this project that's ten thousand or twenty thousand or thirty thousand dollars or whatever, and you're fifty dollars, and someone else says, "Oh, they're hundred dollars," they might say, "You know what? The hundred dollar guy probably get it done. You know, he's in our budget." And I get the impression this guy's a little higher end, mm. right? This guy's top notch guy. Yeah, fifty dollar guys like less experienced, <laughs> less proven, whatever. He's charging less. He must be lower quality, <laughs> right? And um. And so, of course, if you look at the number of fifty dollars, doesn't work out that great when you look at the number of billable hours you can actually do in a day. I mean, you're not like you're billing ten hours a day, even if you are billing. You know, you might be billing five, six, seven times. Can I ask you a question that's um, it's actually not related at all, but it's you've reminded me of this question that I wanted to ask you, want to talk through with you, which is I was reading this article about uh, this guy was talking about why the dollar is going to go into hyperinflation. Yeah, and, I read that article too. And I was <laughs> the just, impending crash of the dollar. Yeah, like I was just thinking, like, what do, what does that mean for you and me? I mean, does that mean that we are going to be destitute and on the street, or does yeah, it mean called, the the topic was called why the dollar is going to collapse? Yeah, I read that article. Um, I mean, okay. or, or does it mean that we then we start charging ten thousand dollars an hour? I mean, what does it mean? Well, if, they, well, if, well if, if, if inflation, if the dollar inflates, essentially that means that it buys less. You know, it costs more. So that same, so, you know, a car, your food, everything is going to cost more because of dollar. So that means you have to charge more. So the dollar, so just so, keep. So, but is this, I mean, if it goes into hyperinflation, okay, so we, we now have our current valuation and, and there's like a curve of, you know, X percent. It's just like it's in the 10% or 5% or whatever. But then when it starts going up to 200, 300, 400%, like, how do you reflect that? Like, let's, let's say we were, <laughs> let's say we were on the, the, you know, this was the month. That hyperinflation was kicking in, and we were on like a thousand percent every week. How does that get reflected in our bills? You know? Yeah. Like <laughs> okay, I'll give you, I'll give you a, a story. Okay, I'm I'm not an I'm not an expert on that, so I can't like you know give you this great break. I read a ton. Of, I've read a ton of stuff on this because I find it fascinating. The whole inflation, deflation. Yeah. You know, Federal Reserve printing trillions of dollars of you know and all this stuff. Fractional Reserve Bank. It's also very fascinating. It's also very kind of concern. It's very concerning. You know what's going on, um, but you know in terms of like what would actually happen. Okay, I had a a, a really good friend of mine um, is from Brazil, yeah. and he was um, he did two things which were interesting because Brazil when he was there for a time had huge inflation. I can't remember what the numbers were, but it was like twenty percent or you know inflation a month or something or just some um, unbelievable prices. So he helped run a restaurant with a um, I think it was a his cousin or something. Yeah. They had like a small restaurant cafe thing, and they would have to raise prices every week considerably. Like they would have, or in sometimes even every day, prices would have to go up. And you know, so that was a very like you know, and you're just keeping track of how much you have, you should, you need to charge to keep in, you know, in line with things. Was I mean that if that was happening to us, does that mean that we then are going to be out on the street? You know, we're going to be in real trouble because, you know, if if what we charge for at the beginning of the month is worth 25% of what 
the same amount is at the end of the month. Yeah. So what you what you want to do is you want to spend your money immediately, right? You want to you you don't want to have someone have to pay you. You don't want to have sixty or ninety day terms. It's like you have to pay me in like two days. <laughs> you know, pay me in like five days, and then immediately you got to go buy, you know, gold or groceries. Has, what's that? Groceries. You've got to groceries, immediately go and buy groceries. You have to spend it. Now, I, I can't remember. This is the kind of things that like, when you think about inflation, I mean, I'm sure some people who know it really well, thought a lot about it, can just kind of. But rent know. couldn't go up, though, could it? I mean, you so because basically, you know, like, for example, I, I don't know about you, but I mean, I'm tied into a year's a year's lease, right, at a certain rate of rent. So if, if this hyperinflation happened. Those kind of things would be screwed. Like your landlord would be screwed. In the short so run. I basically I can pay the land, you know, I'll, I'll pay, I'll be able to pay the landlord a year's worth of rent. I'll say, hey, listen, here's a year's worth of rent. Yeah, essentially, what you've situation. done is you is is is, is 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 you've got a future, what's called a futures on, um, it's like a, a derivative contract on uh, on a price. So you've locked in a price for a year, and you know, people who are locked into things like that will be really screwed. And um, you know, I think mostly what happens in inflationary environments is that. Nobody saves, right? There's nobody saves because it's you lose money. You lose. You're losing money. Now I don't know. Like I said, I don't know a ton about it because I think you know you could talk a lot about interest rates and for you know and um, you know they talk about stagflation and inflation. How all these things, the interplay gets fairly complicated. It's really interesting, kind of a mental exercise to kind of walk through it. But you know, one thing I was one thing was interesting. Um, this 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 friend of mine um, who was in Brazil. He was a uh, for a few years. He played professional soccer in Brazil. Um, and uh, they they brought they had a meeting. So he, unlike most of the professional soccer players down there, he actually went to college first, and then he ended up getting a trout with a team. He's a fantastic player. Played in the first division down in Brazil. Yeah, he was he's amazing. And um, he um, he played for this team. It was the first division, so they have the very top divisions, the premier divisions. He was in the first, was the one below the very top division. And they brought a bunch of the guy. I guess management had a meeting when all the players come in, and they made a deal with them that said they had this proposal that they wanted to give the players. All right, so here's the deal: like we will only pay you X now, but if we win a championship or we do this or that, you know, then you'll get paid at least X amount, and if we do better, you get you get a lot more. You'll get you know Y, right? And but Jack was the only one who was educated enough in economics to understand that they were going to get screwed either way because inflation was going to eat up more than any sort of um, ray a bonus that they would end up getting because they the team did better at the end of the season. Right. And so he 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 stood up and he said, "Well, oh, that doesn't make sense because da da da. You know, well, the, <laughs> the you know the Brazilian you know dollar whatever it was called is going to be worth X." And so da da da. Well, he got it was like the next day he's in practice and the management calls him over and says, "Hey, Jack, you know, come here." He's like, oh my God! Don't, don't make trouble. <laughs> don't make trouble. He's like, oh, oh man. <laughs> like he really got like you know he got one warning. It's like keep your mouth shut. You know. So, do you, I mean, do you think it's going to happen? I mean, do you think that this this is just like scare stories, like that article about you know why the dollar will collapse? Or, I mean, you think that we really have that possibility? I mean, in your in your uneducated opinion, what do you in think? My uneducated yeah. opinion, I think it's possible. Hyperinflation? I don't know. I mean, I've definitely listened. I've definitely read a lot of stuff that makes it seem like it's more possible than not that hyperinflation, that inflation in and higher interest rates. Are going to be more likely than not. I mean, who's there's this guy, there's, there's who's this guy that you're into? There's the, there's the deflation camp and the inflation camp. These two camps arguing what's like deflation can be a terrible risk and inflation can be a terrible risk. I mean, I, 
I could probably discuss this intelligently if you gave me a day to, to kind of re-read through all this stuff and get my thoughts together. But otherwise, I'm going to sound like an idiot on here. There's too many people listen to this and go, you know. Who's, the, who's this guy that you've started getting into? Max, Max someone. Or, oh, he's hilarious. I mean, he's – look, <laughs> this guy's name's Max Kaiser, right? Yeah. And he has a show called <laughs> – MaxKaiser.com. And he has a show called The Truth About Mark X and On the Edge. And he's definitely very extreme. Right? Like some of his like um, – <laughs> Some of the things that he's saying are just totally over the top, but I think he's not completely serious. At least, and if he he's is, funny. Think, he's like he's, he's he's like a comedian or something. He's absolutely hilarious. I, I've 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 gone back and listened to all of his stuff, you know, because I'm sitting here writing code and I just find him hilarious. And he he the way the way it came to my attention, I can't remember where where I first saw Link, but it was um, maybe it came up on Reddit or one of these things, and he's on this like. Uh, uh, finance business taught a show on um, France 24. You know, oh. it was this very serious show, and he's being interviewed w- along with a professor of economics and finance from some French university, I think. And they're talking about, you know, the economic, the economics of in, you know, and currency and things going on. And he just goes off on Goldman Sachs and about how they're criminals that we should be thrown in the Hague and all this stuff. I mean, it was just he was practically calling them child killers. It was hilarious. I mean, no, it was totally over the top, right? Like I've said the email to one or two of my friends who I've said, hey, you should listen to this. And I said, but just I'm not saying I agree with everything he says. I think he's a little over the top. What, what, what's his told- basic pre- – I mean what's his like basic philosophy? Is it is it the, like a conspiracy philosophy similar to No Agenda or – I mean what's his? Um, I think No Agenda like – what's a, Adam Curry? Adam Curry is kind of a right-wing conspiracy conspiracy theorist, right? Because they're conspiracy theorists on both, right? Like he think like Adam Curry thinks the whole bird flu is a whole – is a big conspiracy and all yeah. things, right? And um, – uh, I think this Max thing is more of a left-wing conspiracy theorist, but you know. But I have to say this though, he is a very knowledgeable about markets, right? Like my, I have a I have a background in in trading and fin- and finance, and and he he was talking a lot about markets and and these things, and I know enough to know when people know what they're talking about, right? Yeah. And he knows what he's talking about, you know. I'm like, he's a he's sharp. I mean, he was a he was fine. He was a trader and 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 uh, so he. He definitely understands how currency markets work and bond markets work and, and how the traders think and how the hedge funds work. I mean he's not like just some outside journalist going, these guys are blah, blah, blah. He, as in, he's like an insider who says, you know what, this is just you know, criminal, this and that. But something – but I have to say this though, right? I had – I've, I've had a couple of – I've did a lot of stuff with um, high-frequency trading, right? Yeah. And there was a big article that came out recently – about um, this ex Goldman Sachs guy who stole the source code. He was a VP of high frequency trading at Goldman, and he left and co- before he left, he copied a bunch of uh, the source code for the high frequency trading to a server that was sitting in Germany. I think it just happened that it was sitting in Germany. It was just a server that he could then get access to the code, and then he got hired by he was he was going to get hired for like a million dollars a year for some smaller tr- uh, high frequency trading shop, and uh, he got caught right. And so there's a big brouhaha because I think the 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 um, let me just think there was a few things that aspects to it right I think the New York District Attorney or something got involved and they and they looked at the and they looked at some of what was code and then it gave the impression that Goldman was manipulating the markets because of this and so what happened though is there was a big a lot of conflating with like high frequency trading and market manipulation because it was high frequency they were manipulating the market which is not true because you trade more frequently. 
doesn't mean you're manipulating the market. I mean, if I trade once a month versus once a day, if I trade every day, I'm not manipulating the market. You're trading well, just but but although just by participating in a market, you're changing it. Yeah, but I mean, you're not. But you're not. You're not manipulating it more than right. anyone who's just participating in it. Right. right okay. Yeah. So if you if I trade once a tra if if you trade once a day and I trade fifty times a day, I'm not manipulating it. I'm just trading more frequently than you. You could trade fifty times a day, or if I trade, you know, ten thousand times a day, you know, which is what a lot of firms are doing. Like, and that's I was involved in a project at, with a, a buddy of mine. I was, I did this a couple different times where we, we worked in this area and we were building these these automated trading systems that would trade tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands a day times a day and all these different stocks and would be routing orders to all these different exchanges looking for short-term you know um, high probability price moves you know you could be in and out of position in like three seconds or less right oh. and he's basically but max was going on about like as if high frequency it seemed like was giving implying that high that something was criminal or or, or about high frequency training but a lot of the high frequency player oh. trading players are not big shops like Goldman. There are a lot of like 5, 10, 20, 50 person trading firms that, you know, have, you know, they, you know, maybe a few quants and a few software developers and a few traders and they've, they've, they've co-located some fast servers near the exchanges and they've got some algorithms that are taking in, they're taking in these data feeds these, and they have like, you know, one millisecond delay if that microsecond delay and they're, and they're, and they're analyzing the market in real time and looking for price opportunities and buying and selling. And all that's doing is, is, is making the market liquid and uh, people buying and selling. There's nothing illegal or improper about that. But because Goldman was involved in it um, and because they might have been doing some other things that might have been manipulative, manipulative or you know, questionable, it gave the impression that um, high frequency trading was somehow improper. And I was like – and because I know about that stuff and, I, and, and I'm like, yeah, that's not actually right. <laughs> You know, like when I think, look at this market stuff, it seems to me that there can only ever be a few winners. I, I made um, a simulate, uh, like a, a, a f simulation out of Flash, mm -hmm. and what I did was I set up this this scenario where every two minutes a new person would come in into the market. So it's like it was like a trading simulation. Okay. So every two minutes a new a new sort of object would come in, and that object would have like a hundred pounds. Work, mm -hmm. or say a hundred dollars right and it mm -hmm. would put it in there and it would start interacting with other objects uh, or, or people as they were in this system and i left this thing running for days and no matter what happened like no matter what what way i played it what way i tweaked it it always ended up that most <laughs> most of the people in the system had no money <laughs> and a couple of the people in the system ended up with all the money <laughs> yeah well you know that's funny that you say that i, I you know I mean, i'm curious more about your simulation but um it's hard. One thing I will say, though, is that um, okay, there's a ton of things to say about this, right? I mean, there's a ton of stuff. We could have like ten podcasts about this stuff, and there's and I only know enough to talk about some of it. But um, okay, yeah. I, and in trading, it's kind of funny because I think they even say like if you if you know if you, if you read books on on trading for like expert traders and stuff like that, and they'll basically tell you that ninety two percent or something like that of all people who go into trading lose. Not only don't make money, but they lose everything they came to trade with, right? So let's say you open up an account with a hundred grand or fifty grand or two hundred thousand or whatever, yep. you would end up losing all, if not almost all, of it. And trading. that's ninety percent of people. Ninety percent or ninety. There's some statistic I can't remember. And then there's like another like six, five or six percent that are kind of moderately successful or break even or kind of moderate. And then there's like this small number or handful 
five percent, three percent that that kill it. And these are people who actually this isn't talking about like automated artificially intelligent high frequency trading or anything like that. These are just people who are really, really good. And that's the same thing with like but that's the same thing with anything, right? The same thing with like music and authors and athletes and anything. You know, there's you know, it's just it's just in a much more raw, quantitative, pure form in trading. Right. If you go out there and you said, all right, we're going to have a basketball one on one tournament. Everyone's going to go in there. <laughs> right. It's all the people who end up being professional basketball players are going to win every game. Right. And there's going to be a small number who are like division one college basketball players who might win a few games against some of the pros. Right. Oh. And everyone else is just going to get dunked on every and just walk off and leave. You know, what scared me about my simulation was that basically everyone came into the system and they, they brought in a hundred pounds, hundred dollars. Mm -hmm. And then everyone loses the money. Like, I was I sort of started thinking about how that equates to the real world. Like, where does the money come from? You know, like is isn't that isn't the the whole system stacked to just make it that many 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 people will end up with no money? <laughs> it's like where does money? How does money exist and come into the system? I mean, who? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, uh, okay, cool, cool thing. One. I, I find this whole topic fascinating. I think we'd be careful at talking too much about it just because we're not experts in it. And yeah. I'm not sure how much people are going to want to hear us talk okay. about it since okay. we're not experts in it. I'll talk. I'll I would like to know where money comes because it seems to me that if you – okay, let me, let me give an example. A farmer feeding some chickens, right? He has uh, two handfuls of grain. He throws that in, right? So that's – let's say that's all the money there is in the world. Well, you know, most of those chickens aren't going to get any of that grain. Mm-hmm. Did you, did you see where I'm coming from? Yeah, well, I mean that's the whole like scarce resources thing. I, you know, I, I read this really interesting um, book. And I wish I could remember. It was like this called the Story of Money or something. And the and it's one of these guys who like libertarian uh, Austrian economist, right? And they really talk about this very concrete idea of money as opposed to I think what's called Keynesian. You know, they call Keynesians or whatever, and they, they're ones who like this, talk about inflating. They do all this stuff with like, you know, the monetary policy and yeah. inflating money and fractional banking reserves and all this stuff that people, that a lot of people are starting to get really concerned about because it's like manipulating money and, and, and maybe doing a lot more harm than good. But essentially, they, this one book, they were talking about, okay, let's talk in a simple case, like you have a handful of people on an island, right? Yeah. It's like, let's say there's, there's like 10 of us, right? We get crashed, we're shipwrecking on it. It's like Gilligan's Island, right? Yeah, okay. It's like, okay, we got to figure out, someone's got to go get some coconuts so we have something to some kind of to drink and somebody maybe goes to the mountain there's a little mountain there to get water and somebody needs to go fish maybe with some food and maybe someone needs to go out and in you know because we could all try to do it all together but that's inefficient right so like hey this guy knows a fish why don't you go fish and this guy is so everybody does that and if if we say well you know there's a, there's only a certain amount of value that these 10 people can create right uh, which is the basic products that's the basic products. And if let's say that they let's say that you have something that you define as like what's going to be because if if I'm if I'm a fisherman, right? Let's say I go out there and I catch some fish, right? And let's say you're the one who who builds these like huts, right? You're in charge of building huts. And uh, and all of a sudden, um, I say, "Hey, Justin, you know, dude, I need a I need a hut too, right?" And you're like, "Well, you know, you're like, well, I already have a lot of fish." <laughs> Right, I don't yeah. need more fish. Right? Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. Well, that's all I got. You're like, well, I'm not building you a hut. <laughs> so, like, so I go, okay, well, I, then I like, well, what do you need? You're like, well, I need some eggs, and I go talk some, you know, maybe there's someone over there who's has some, some wild chickens or something where they scavenge some <laughs> eggs, right? And I'm like, I use some fish and eggs, right? So that gets really, really 
uh, inefficient, right? So you come up with something that that substitutes as money. And I think initially with things like you know, it, initially it was like spices because okay. people it was something that everybody kind of needed and wanted. And it was um, high value per weight, so it was very transportable, and it didn't like um, you know spices stayed didn't um, you know rot or anything like that. And something you carry around, like you could carry around a bunch of eggs, right? They go bad, and you couldn't carry around things that were heavy. And so um, uh, you know, but it, it ended up going towards like silver and gold because those became the perfect things, you know. And it wasn't because anyone just said we're going to do gold. It just happened that that people always wanted it, and it was ex- extremely valuable for weight and da 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 da. Right? But so that's it, it, this whole thing with the book about that, which is really interesting. It was very clarified the whole idea of money to me. And but one of the things they talked about was you know like there's only so much value in it. So if all of a sudden we decide we come up with some kind of like thing like these clamshells or something are our dollars, right? We don't understand. We got to figure out someone's money to make some more convenient. Well, if all of a sudden somebody goes out and counterfeits them and creates like, you know, they go on the other side of the island and, and, and makes, they found out a place where they can find these clamshells and they go make a whole bunch more and start paying for them. Then all of a sudden we have a lot more clamshells, but we still don't have any more fish or houses. It's just now they've yeah. got circulation. So now all of a sudden, you know, I, you know, I have to pay five clamshells for fish instead of like, you know, two. Right? So that's inflation. That's inflation, right? You just have more clamshells representing the same amount of ultimate goods and services. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is my lecture on money. Oh, <laughs> yes, I don't know what I'm talking about, so please don't any, you know, email me or comment in about how I don't know what I'm talking about. But that's just that's just kind of like a, a little bit of what I remember from that. And uh, that's but if you do, if you do actually want to uh, c- complain about anything we've talked about, send your email to podcast at techzinglive.com. Or you just directly to Justin. Um, and you know, another thing is we're we're very much hoping that you subscribe to our show um, on iTunes. <laughs> or better yet, better yet, tell if you think if you think of anybody who might like it, might like this stuff, uh, tell them about it. You know. So tinyurl.com forward slash techzing. Right. I think we've 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 talked enough crap. What do you I think? I think that's it. I think I've, I think we've talked out. All right, that's an, that's a wrap. We're out. <laughs>